Welcome to this podcast for New Retina Radio. In today's program, Professor Richard Harrod from the University of Bristol in the UK leads a discussion on the management of amblyopia, focusing on new technologies that could change the way that we approach this common condition. In this episode, we will discuss the strategies currently used to manage amblyopia and talk about the use of dicoptic therapy as an innovative digital solution. We'll cover the potential benefits of dicoptic therapy as well as the challenges associated with its use. Welcome to this podcast. My name is Richard Harrod. I'm an ophthalmologist in Bristol in England. And today I'm joined by Ben Thompson and Anne Weber, and we'll be discussing dicoptic therapy a new approach to the management of amblyopia. Anne, can you please tell me a bit about your background and your interest in dicoptic therapy? Yes, Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Harrod. Yes, my name is Anne Weber. I'm a paediatric optometrist in Brisbane, Australia. Um, As well as holding a a private practice appointment, I have an appointment at the Queensland Children's Hospital and an associate professor appointment at the Queensland University of Technology. So I have a clinical interest in in amblyopia because um, 80% of my practice would be working with uh, children, Uh, but I also have a a strong uh, research, clinical research interest in amblyopia, particularly the functional impacts of amblyopia, so how it it, uh, uh, affects children and their families and how it affects uh, function and performance. Um, And I have a particular interest in understanding the underlying mechanisms of amblyopia and how we can best achieve treatments. Thank you. And Ben, can you please tell me a bit about your background and your interest in dicoptic therapy? Absolutely. Uh, I'm a professor in the School of Optometry and Vision Science at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Uh, My background is actually in experimental psychology and neuroscience, and my primary research interest is the development and neuroplasticity of the human visual system. In terms of dicoptic therapy, I've been involved in this field for for a number of years now. At the start of my career as a postdoctoral fellow, I was involved in developing dicoptic therapy at McGill University, uh, also in Canada. And it's been a theme throughout my research to this point. And most recently, I've led a randomized clinical trial of dicoptic therapy uh, that we reported last year. Thank you very much. Anne, can you please outline the current therapeutic options for treatment of amblyopia? Amblyopia, as we know, is um, abnormal vision, uh, you know, is poor vision from abnormal vision development early in life. So, you know, treatment generally is being about uh, identifying what the underlying amblyogenic feature may be. So that may be um, uncorrected refractive error um, and treating that underlying cause first. And then generally some sort of active program to promote uh, the re-engagement of development of the of the visual system uh, and that may be by uh, occlusion so penalization of the dominant eye to uh, promote vision development of the previously dis- disused visual pathway um, and that may be penalization by putting a patch an occlusive patch over the child's eye or over the child's glasses or it may be penalization with uh, atropine so that that um, you know, creates a blur into the dominant eye, again, with the idea that that would then promote 
um, the, the re-establishment or sort of reigniting of, of development of the previously neglected visual pathway. So these are, um, you know, monocular therapies sort of based upon the, the premise that amblyopia very much was a, a, a visual acuity deficit. Um, uh, so it kind of wasn't necessarily... Um, considering perhaps the, the chicken and egg question of, you know, what was amblyopia? Was it poor visual acuity? Um, and then was poor binocular um, perception the result of poor visual acuity in one eye? Or could it be the other way around? So could the poor binocular fusion uh, be the actual initiator of the eventual retardant of visual acuity? So, uh, you know, current strategies tend to be, um, have traditionally been monocularly based, but based upon more uh, recent research that's shown us a lot about uh, the visual cortex and, and plasticity, more uh, treatments are coming into this dichoptic uh, area. Okay, and thanks. That's a helpful outline. Can you um, tell, us, tell us perhaps a little bit about the weaknesses of the conventional treatment with occlusion and penalization? Where you know, it, it, clearly that's, it's not ideal, otherwise we wouldn't be looking around for other uh, better therapeutic options. Yeah, I think, I think, well, one of the problems is that um, there is a significant proportion of children that uh, even if you treat them by these, um, by these methods, that still carry some sort of residual visual acuity deficit, even with, with best efforts. Um, there's also uh, a difficulty of uh, compliance sometimes with these uh, these program these programs, and um, you know that that there was concern that um, patching for children may have adverse psychological or adverse adverse psychosocial impacts on the children or family, um, and so whether they could be uh, treatments that were were less um, uh, harmful, potentially harmful to to the child was was something that was considered, um, but also uh, there have been limitations to the age at which you will get good good visual acuity recovery outcomes as well. So, sort of traditionally, we've had the perception that had the clinical belief that you will get good success with uh, the traditional treatments up to about the age of eight. But uh, whether there are new treatments or alternative treatments that could re-engage the uh, more mature visual system. So we're sort of compliance, uh, you know, significant proportion that weren't getting good recovery. Um, even those that recover, there was a significant proportion that then regress. Um, and then the, the, the difficulty of treating the more visual the more mature visual pathway. Okay, that's that's very helpful. Thanks. So, Ben, would you like to perhaps um, outline what uh, uh, dichoptic therapy amounts to um, for the listeners? Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, Anne's coverage there of the current treatments was was excellent. And just to to build upon that. Um, and to link into dichoptic therapy, one of the issues with current treatments is they really just focus on vision in the amblyopica on its own, rather than trying to re-engage binocular vision, which allows for 3D depth perception, which I guess is one of the most functionally relevant losses that people with amblyopia experience. And the idea behind dichoptic therapy is to really target binocular vision as the primary um, therapeutic component of the treatment. 
So just to give you a bit of a, a background to, to the underlying idea, uh, one of the, uh, or I should say really, a really striking phenomena in amblyopia is that when people who have amblyopia have both eyes open, information from the amblyopic eye tends to be suppressed from conscious awareness. And in really strong cases of, of suppression, the patient can have both eyes open and they're really only consciously perceiving through their good eye, through their fellow eye. So somewhere in the brain, information from the amblyopic eye is shut down. Now, in a series of, uh, of experiments leading up to um, the somewhat serendipitous um, discovery of dicoptic, or the principles of dicoptic therapy, a series of experiments were conducted to address whether people who have amblyopia still have the connections in their brain that are required to support binocular vision. And the way that uh, this was done was to vary the visibility of the images seen by the two eyes to see if there could be a point where the two eyes began to work together, which would be a demonstration of the fact that those brain mechanisms were still in place. And the way the images were varied is that very high contrast or clearly visible images were shown to the amblyopic eye and much lower contrast or harder to see images were shown to the fellow eye. And if you get that contrast difference between the two eyes right, it was found, then the brain can use those images together in people who have amblyopia. So this demonstrated that the brain was able to combine information from the two eyes. Uh, what happened in those studies, and I guess I can, I can tell you a bit of my experience because I was involved in them. We, we had participants coming into the lab and we were measuring what we called this balance point contrast, which is the difference between the two eyes that's required uh, for, for binocular vision to take place. And we found that the more we measured that, the less difference that they required between their two eyes. And some participants reported spontaneous improvements in their visual acuity and their binocular vision. And it seemed that just by repeatedly exposing people to images they could combine between their two eyes led to an improvement. Uh, unexpected, it just started off as a study looking at binocular vision. So on the basis of this, uh, the team that I was part of, we started training people on some of these tasks and we found uh, improvements in their acuity and in stereo. And perhaps most strikingly, these were adults in their 40s and 50s. And as Anne quite rightly said, uh, there's a concept in amblyopia therapy whereby the brain has a high level of plasticity during development and, and can relearn how to use an amblyopic eye. But in adulthood, that plasticity is thought to be lost. And yet we found improvements in these adult patients. Uh, and so that really was the basis for the dicoptic therapy. Just to, to summarize, the idea is that you, you show much more visible images to the amblyopic eye than to the fellow eye, and you find a point at which the brain can combine them. And then you repeatedly expose people to images uh, that allow for binocular vision. Um, in, in terms of the mechanisms for how it works, um, there, there are a number of, of possible, um, possible ways. One is that it, it addresses an active suppression of the amblyopic eye. So the brain is, is acting to shut down that information. And by using this contrast imbalance, we're able to overcome that suppression and gradually weaken it over time. Another possibility is that there is no active suppression. It's just that the amblyopic eye signal is very weak. And by having the contrast imbalance between the two eyes, we're activating binocular cells in the brain and giving them correlated input from the two eyes. And over time, those binocular cells strengthen, the synaptic connection strengthen to allow recovery of vision in the amblyopic eye. Uh, and even recently, and I think Anne will probably want to comment on this as well, there's really exciting new work coming out suggesting that there are differences in attention uh, associated with amblyopia, how the brain actually allocates attentional resources to the amblyopic eye and to the fellow eye. We did a study quite recently demonstrating that when the two eyes have equally have images that can be seen binocularly, the brain cannot allocate attention to the amblyopic eye as effectively as a fellow eye. And so dicoptic therapy might be working through that kind of pathway as well. I know, and that you have some interest in this area too. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, we've, 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 we've thought of um, the deficits with ambiopia as being, you know, a monocular visual acuity. And then we've sort of gone beyond that and, and thought that, well, no, it's actually the binocular combination and it's, it's within the, the striate cortex. And that's sort of the classic studies of, you know, Hubel and Weasel that have shown us that physiologically. Um, we know that there's other um, psychophysical deficits such as, you know, poorer positional sense, so your hyperacuity deficits and things. But we're now starting to explore what the higher level executive function deficits may be. So, you know, what's happening in these sort of brain networks that are, you know, beyond our visual pathway and are they altered as well in, uh, in amblyopia? And, and we've recently um, conducted a study looking at um, uh, a test called Useful Field of View, um, where you have selected and divided attention tasks and found that amblyopic children are poorer than control children on that activity. And that the, the, uh, the sort of the difference between the two groups was greater as the task became more complex. Um, and we also had the kids do a, a, a task, which was a, a trail making test where they you know, had to, to link and solve some puzzles. And again, those activities were poorer um, or slower for the uh, amblyopic children to complete than the uh, control children. And again, the difference between the two groups was greater as the, as the tasks became more complex. So it sort of points to this sort of higher level executive function um, potentially attentional deficits that may also be there. So, you know, beyond what we've been thinking about is the visual um, decrement of, of amblyopia. Um, and so, and in these novel and emerging um, treatments, so we've got dicoptic therapy, but we've also had other studies have looked at things like action game playing or um, perceptual learning, all of which that uh, engage and drive attention. Um, and, you know, so, so there's starting to be some... Um, you know, really interesting studies trying to, to look then, you know, what is it there that, that maybe these activities, these dicoptic activities that also require the kids to or the participants to attend and solve puzzles, um, you know, maybe that's switching on some high-level executive function, you know, substrate that then is then passing down to binocular and then passing down to visual acuity rather than top up. So, you know, this is all quite speculative, of course, but, uh, you know, I think adds to what's coming. Yeah. So we got uh, top down, bottom up. Um, I'm interested in the idea that the uh, binocular cells uh, or the binocular system has really been um, ignored uh, in conventional treatment. Uh, it interests me that um, where you have uh, no binocular function whatsoever, as you do with congenital esotropes who end up alternating with no amblyopia um, and no binocular function. It, it seems to me no coincidence that they have no binocular function, but that in a sense is, is what does preserve their visual acuity. The binocular um, cells are the, the battleground for the control of visual acuity in those children who go on to develop amblyopia. And since that is the battleground, uh, that's should also be an area that is part of the uh, part of the treatment. We need to be treating uh, binocular function in order to get the best results for our amblyopia treatment. And uh, I think the 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 uh, alternators with no amblyopia, those uh, patients are uh, an indicator of, um, as it were, the sort of extreme example of what happens if you don't have 
any binocular interactions at all. And that somehow preserves their vision. I wonder what you think of that as an idea, Ben, is that? Yeah, but I, I, think, I think that's right. Um, I, I was thinking of an experiment we tried um, some years ago now to see if we could measure these binocular interactions in people who had alternating isotropia in the way that you describe. Um, and we found that uh, we had to have really, really extreme contrast differences between the two eyes for them to be able to have any kind of simultaneous perception, and some of them couldn't. So I think you know your idea fits with the data that we uh, that we have. Whereas in amblyopia, you know we can get the the two eyes to be used simultaneously simultaneously with with a moderate contrast offset for most people. We we also um, conducted some some studies that were looking at uh, the relative contribution of monocular acuity loss versus this contrast decrement loss to stereopsis. So if if we um, you know, think of uh, stereopsis as kind of the pinnacle of the of the you know functional triangle of of uh, binocular vision. Um, you know, in in these in these uh, patients that have got equal acuity but have got a a very high uh, contrast imbalance, uh, they were the ones that had the most degraded stereoacuity. Um, so we did have a look both within um, uh, patients who'd had a history of amblyogenic. Um, factor interrupting their normal vision development. But we also looked in a model of um, participants with normal binocular vision development, but then we introduced an, a visual acuity decrement with, with a filter. Um, and so they didn't have the acuity loss. And it was really very um, striking that the, uh, the sort of the level of the depth of suppression was what was driving the loss of binocular stereoscopic ability. Um, and it wasn't the visual acuity that was the uh, the gauge. Thank you. So um, moving on, perhaps Ben, could you um, describe how this um, therapy actually works with the iPad and glasses, etc.? Absolutely. So there's two ways the binocular therapy has been deployed. So one is called the the, the active sorry dicoptic therapy has been deployed. Uh, one is called active therapy. So this is typically in the form of video games where uh, the elements of the video game are split between the two eyes uh, with a contrast difference favoring the amblyopic eye. And then the participant plays the game. Uh, typically that contrast difference would be tailored to that particular person's level of suppression. The crucial element here is that neither eye gets all of the information from the game that's required to play. So the only way the person can successfully play is to combine information between the two eyes. Uh, the original game that we designed was a version of the video game Tetris. Um, as you can imagine, that was quite an easy one to do because there were blocks falling down the screen, blocks at the bottom of the screen that we could easily split between the two eyes. Uh, the downside, as we found out, and as I expect we'll discuss later, was that it wasn't a particularly engaging game over, over a period of time. And so uh, more recently, uh, much more interesting uh, versions of video games have been developed that use the same principle where characters will be in one eye, backgrounds in the other, um, and so forth. So this is the active technique. The passive technique is rather than having people play a video game, they watch a cartoon or a movie and elements of that cartoon or movie are split between the two eyes. Uh, the most common way of doing that so far is to split each frame into a jigsaw puzzle. And some of the pieces are shown to one eye and some of the pieces are shown to the other eye. And so the brain has to complete the puzzle in order to uh, be able to watch the movie properly. Uh, the vast majority of, of research has been conducted using the active technique, uh, but passive technique um, 
studies are coming out, they're looking promising. And of course, they're much better suited for younger children who aren't yet able to engage fully with video games. So the idea is uh, you, you would select a, a dicoptic treatment subtype that was most suitable for uh, the patient's abilities and their age. Excellent. And um, what about uh, the clinical trials that have been carried out using this approach? Um, what kind of results have we been getting? Uh, they've been mixed at best. So the initial studies um, that came out of the Retina Foundation of the Southwest were, were very promising. So they reported larger improvements in acuity in children who were treated with the dicoptic treatment versus patching. Um, other st studies that have been done by the Pediatric Eye Disease Investigator Group have either shown approximately the same effect as patching or no effect of uh, dicoptic treatment. And the clinical trial that I led, um, which I expected would show um, the same sort of results we'd found in the lab, showed no difference from placebo in a randomized clinical trial. So really um, a broad range of different results in the clinical trial literature at the moment. So um, what have we learned from these trials that could help us design um, a better, better therapy in, in the future? My, my view at the moment is the, the underlying issue is how people engage with the dicoptic treatment in the home. So when we were first developing this, this technique, everything was done in the lab. People were uh, closely monitored as they were taking part in the treatment and, and the results were very promising. Now, that being said, they were um, initial proof of concept experiments. So they weren't as well controlled as a randomized trial. So there, there would have been sources of bias in those experiments, but the participants were well monitored. Um, when we have come to the clinical trials, we've moved from those laboratory conditions into the home environment. And what I think has happened is that people just engage with the treatment very, very differently. So I can give you an example. For the clinical trial that I ran, uh, we found low adherence with the treatment. Now, we did use the Tetris video game, which, uh, as I've mentioned before, was perhaps not the best choice because it does get pretty dull pretty fast. And so people weren't so keen playing it over a long period of time. And we saw that in the, in the adherence data. We've more recently done a very detailed analysis of those data. Uh, and I should say one very nice thing about using electronic devices for treatment is they record a lot of information that you can come back and check out later as to the time of day people played, how long they played it for, what kind of scores they got on the game. We found it in, in the trial that I led that people uh, played, we asked them to play for at least an hour a day. Uh, they, they tended to play for about 20 minutes a day if they played at all. Uh, the, the blocks of play were short and people paused the game on, our, on a median time of every four minutes. So we included a pause button in case people needed a break. Clearly that wasn't the best thing to have done because they were disengaging from the treatment even during those treatment periods. And, and I think, you know, if you imagine doing these kind of games at home, we had adult participants and we had children participants as well. I expect people were going about their daily lives, you know, watching TV, perhaps their favorite show was on or their siblings were watching TV in the corner or their children were fighting or they were trying to do something else. And so you play the game for a period of time, you're looking up, you pause it. So that engagement in the home is very, very different to the engagement in the laboratory. And I, I think based on the evidence that we have from human studies and from animal models as well now, I, I think the underlying principles of dicoptic therapy are well supported it's the implementation in the home that is the really difficult component of it. And I think that's the, where we need some, some serious work to consider what might, what might be uh, the best way to do that. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that's where we stand. Okay, thanks Anne. Were any comments on, uh, on what Ben has said? 
Uh, no, I mean, I would con concur. So, so uh, I did run a trial um, looking at that employed the Tetris program because, um, you know, a lot of my, my research interest was in the impact of amblyopia on fine motor skills. Um, and one of the questions that comes out of that is whether, you know, the, the decrement of fine motor skills that was, um, is now well recognised in amblyopes, whether if you treated the amblyopia, whether fine motor skills would improve. Um, I was aware of the uh, dicoptic training and um, employed that as the treatment in, in my trial, more because I wanted a treatment that um, had shown improvements in a short period of time, so in a two-week period. So I wanted to know that if there was any improvement in biomotor skills, um, that it wasn't because the children had matured six months or, or 12 months um, which is how long uh, patching or atropine therapy will often go for, so that we could really know whether or not improvements were from treating the amblyopia and not from just natural improvement with uh, age and maturation of the child. So in that study where I did use the Tetris, compliance rates were reported to be quite good and we, so we had levels of improvement in acuity that were at around about the one and a half lines. Now, if you look across all of the, as I say, these sort of novel and emerging, your, your perceptual learning, your action video game and the dicoptic, so meta-analyses that have compared across these are generally finding that it's about a line and a half improvement. So I think that's one of our other challenges is that, um, you know, patching an atropine in, in uh, the ideal clinical group, so our kids who are aged somewhere between three and eight or nine, the, the number of lines improvement is, is, is much better. So I think that's, that's also a little bit of a, of a, a disappointment in the clinical group is that there just isn't those sort of dramatic two to three to four lines improvement in acuity that we may get in a, in a young child who we're sort of patching straight away. But it, there's still too many unknowns. There's too many, too many uh, variables that are influencing, you know, the compliance to the task. But what my patients were reporting to me was, do you know what, can I go back, could I go back to patching because I could just put a patch on and I can watch any video game that I want, not just the one that you're serving up to me. So it kind of ended up flipping around. We thought that they would be wrapped in having their own little iPod and wrapped with doing something that was more technology uh, driven. But in fact, uh, they just wanted that, that, that choice. Kids are now far more technologically sophisticated than they were even when all these studies started what, 10, 15 years ago then, um, that it, it's, you know, we're, we're really, um, you know, racing to, to uh, keep, their, keep their engagement. Uh, but, yeah, I, I do truly believe that something, as you pointed out, Richard, in that in that binocular battlefield that is, uh, you know, makes this worth pursuing. Um, we know the science makes sense, so it's how do we really combine it down and 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 serve it in a way that um, is is engaging um, and is also accessible um, because you know there's this you know, cost to technology and equipment and things like that. So we've been able to provide them in trials, but then how do we actually get those things into the hands of, of, of patients? So, yeah, I think there's still work to do. Okay. I'm, get, I'm getting a strong message here that um, we need to have games that uh, are engaging, that uh, the participants, the patients uh, will um, look forward to, to playing and, you know, uh, get up early in the morning and rush off and grab the iPad and put their red and green glasses on and uh, 
get going um, before school. Um, if if we can achieve that, uh, the results that um, from certainly from some of the studies suggest that the amount of time that needs to be spent uh, doing uh, iPad games in this um, dicoptic therapy is much less time uh, than you would spend having uh, a patch on your eye uh, with the inevitable consequence of reducing your visual function. I mean, if you've got an amblyopic eye um, that has very poor vision and you having to spend six hours of the day with your good eye uh, wearing an eye patch, um, life can be really quite difficult. Um, so I think that the advantages of having uh, one or two hours of a day of treatment using um, the video game is, is a considerable because it means the patch that that can be done at, uh, at home. Um, it doesn't affect schoolwork. Um, if we can just get the right games with the right, um, uh, that engage um, our patient group sufficiently, then I think there's huge scope for bringing about rapid improvements in vision. Yeah, and I think it's not only just the, the, the time that you're spending each day, but it's actually the, the whole duration of, of the treatment. I think that's what was very exciting initially, was that it was like, what we're getting, you're getting those results in a lab in just two weeks. Um, whereas, as I say, the, you know, the patching program or your atropine program tends to be, you know, a six-month program, uh, you know, the, and, and high variability between clinicians in the in the amount of patching that they, they do, um, and I, you know, we know there are some dose response curves that have come out of the monitored occlusion treatment studies um, that suggest that you know it was 100 200 hours of cumulative patching is what is kind of where things plateau. We don't know how long you have to do the dicoptic treatment for, so it may be that it is an hour a day for a month. Is where you're going to plateau. Well, that's maybe that's going to be something that is achievable for a family, versus battling with the child to get your two hours or four hours a day of patching for how long? Three months, six months, a year. Um, so I think there's that element of it as well. You know, the whole duration of the treatment program. It'd be wonderful if it was relatively short for the families. Okay, I just like to um, ask particular question about um, the kind of patients with amblyopia who are suitable for this treatment. My impression is that if you've got a, a strabismus of more than about um, sort of eight um, prism diopters, uh, so in other words, a large convergent or divergent squint, uh, you can't really use this, this treatment. It, am I right in thinking that? Because if that's true, that excludes um, the majority of, of, of um, children with amblyopia, because it means you can only really treat those with a small microtropia or uh, anisometropic amblyopia. Richard, I, I think that's a great point, and you're right that in many of the trials, um, anybody with um, a, a substantial strabismus has been excluded, and, and the, the primary reason is that the, um, the treatment devices allow you to uh, offset the relative images of the two eyes by a certain number of pixels on the screen, but the screens are quite small. So uh, what I mean by that is if the two eyes are misaligned, you can misalign the images on the screen so that they would be fusible by the participant, but only within a limited range. In the study that I did, we used an iPod touch, which obviously is a very small screen. Uh, the PEDIC studies have used um, iPads, and again, they're limited. Um, 
it, it remains an open question is if people use different types of technologies, whether um, people with larger strabismus angles could be treatable using this technique. Um, there are groups that are looking at head-mounted displays and so forth for delivering the treatment that may provide more flexibility. In our initial lab studies, we did have people with larger strabismus angles and they were corrected prismatically. And we had a, a mirror stereoscope, that, like a, a formal lab setup, I guess, that gave us much more flexibility. So, so you're right, I think it's an open question. Um, but certainly with the current technology, there are limitations. Yes, so I'm pleased to hear that there are options, as you say, with head-mounted displays or in, in, including prisms. Uh, one thing occurs to me is that if this technique uh, progresses and we've, it's more widely used, it would be a reason to actually carry out um, surgery to correct the strabismus prior to amblyopia treatment, rather than doing what we do at the moment, which is to say, well, you can have your surgery once we've managed to get your vision uh, sufficiently improved. So we tend at the moment to treat uh, amblyopia first and then operate, but uh, it might be a reason to operate and then treat the amblyopia if indeed um, we are this we are starting to roll out this treatment more widely. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't realised that that was the sequence. Yeah, well, that, that, that that's a good, uh, because one of the worries is that uh, the parents will say, uh, "Oh, my child's got straight eyes now. I've got nothing to worry about." and abandon uh, amblyopia treatment uh, because their principal concern is what's noticeable to them, which is the, the visible um, strabismus that the child has rather than uh, their visual deficit. So we're sort of making assumptions and perhaps manipulating patients slightly um, and rewarding a good amblyopia therapy with the promise of an operation. But that could all change. Um, uh, you know, in, in the light of these new techniques that are becoming available. So I'm, um, we're nearing the end of this discussion. It's a, Anne, is there anything you would like to add? Well, look, I, I just do think it's, you know, it's, it's exciting times. I think it's, it's uh, you know, we do know that the traditional treatments um, have got drawbacks. Uh, the, the impact on family and children and the number of, of, families for whom it just becomes too difficult to battle. So they, you know, abandon doing anything. And so that you end up with, you know, something that really is a lifelong burden. Um, you know, this is a vision loss that's right at the start of somebody's, you know, functional life. So if we can turn this around and restore good vision, not only good monocular vision, but good binocularity. So they've got that extra sort of driver to reach their, their potential um, you know, I think it's exciting times. Thank you very much. So that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Ben Thompson and Anne Weber for their contribution. And I hope um, that you have found this an interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.